SBS Radio. SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Hello, Yama. Welcome to Night TV Radio. Bertrand Tungandami Ngaya. I'm Bertrand Tungandami and I'm very happy to be your host this Friday, August 26. Now, coming up in your program today, well, this week, from 21st to the 27th of August, was Speech Pathology Awareness Week. And in this context, we had a conversation with Sharin McLeod, Professor of Speech and Language Acquisition at Charles Sturt University. We explored the findings of our new study celebrating young Indigenous Australian children's speech and language competence. And uh, we saw how uh, Professor McLean, McLeod actually worked with Indigenous children who speak between one and eight languages and the role of elders in speech and language acquisition. Also on NITV Radio, we discuss recent developments in science and technology with the Wiradjuri woman and STEM editor Ray Johnston. Among other topics, we'll hear how introduced non-native reptiles and amphibian species are costing Australia billions of dollars every year. NITV Radio will also explore an interview of uh, will feature an interview of Kenneth McLean, a traditional owner, talking about an exhibition currently on in Brisbane, exploring ancient trade routes, relation and relationships in the Coral Sea, dating thousands of years. All this and many more coming to you on NITV Radio. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many This bulletin, First Nations education leaders are calling for an increase in funding for Indigenous-run education. Bill Shorten says senior coalition ministers and former Prime Minister Scott Morrison may be brought before the Robodebt Commission. And the Greens have accused the government of undoing their own climate legislation. First Nations education leaders are calling for an increase for an increase in funding for indigenous run education. The Closing the Gap report indicated a record high percentage of indigenous enrollments in preschool programs with almost 97% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children enrolled a year before beginning school. It also revealed an increase an increasing proportion of 6 out of 10 indigenous children are not developmentally ready for school. The chair of SNAKE, the Secretariat of National Aboriginal Islander Child Care, Catherine Lido, says the solution is to invest in more Indigenous early learning centres. 
It's a really simple solution, and that simple solution is to invest in community-controlled responses. So that means the development of our own early learning centres. We know that those areas that have access to Aboriginal community-controlled services have more children attending and get better developmental outcomes. The Western Australian Supreme Court has ruled a teenage boy was unlawfully locked in his cell for up to a day at a time at Perth's Banksia Hill Detention Centre. Prompting calls for more culturally appropriate trained officers, Justice Justice Paul Toto says the boy's treatment was not authorised under the Young Offenders Act, despite the the facility's inadequate staffing. Justice Justice Toto described such confinement as severe and warned it could result in considerable harm. In a case brought by the Aboriginal Legal Service of Western Australia, the court found the boy had unlawfully spent 20 hours or more of each day locked in his cell on more than 25 occasions between January and July this year. The boy was aged 14 when he was first detained but turned 15 while on remand. An estimated 31,000 Australian workers are calling in sick every day because of the debilitating symptoms of long COVID. Treasury data given to News Corp papers show 12% of uh, the labour force is staying home sick because of the long-term effects of uh, the virus. It comes as New South Wales and Victoria report a combined 8,580 cases of coronavirus with 5,645 and 2,935 new infections respectively. New South Wales reported 1,780 people in hospital with the virus while Victoria reported 386. Victoria reported 25 deaths of people infected with COVID-19, while New South Wales reported 22. Meanwhile, Treasurer Jim Chalmers flagged tackling the impact of long COVID will be on the table at next job at next week's jobs jobs summit. Government Services and NDIS Minister Bill Shorten says there's a Government Services and NDIS Minister Bill Shorten says there's a good case for senior coalition ministers, including former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, to be brought before the Royal Commission into RoboDebt. The Royal Commission will examine the controversial welfare system which measures a person's average income to claim almost $2 billion from more than 400,000 welfare recipients and was ruled unlawful by a federal court in 2019. The opposition leader Peter Dutton has called the Royal Commission a witch hunt by the government to score political points. Bill Shorten says the coalition shouldn't try to defend the indefensible. For four and a half years, they stubbornly and stupidly defended uh, an unlawful scheme. So uh, at some point, I think for closure for the victims and also to make sure that it it can't happen again, um, it'll be important, I think, for the responsible people who created and ran RoboDebt to explain why they did this. New South Wales Building Commissioner David Chandler has reversed his decision to quit less than two months after handing in his, resigna- his resignation. Mr Chandler's surprise departure in early July was linked to the dismissal of then-trading minister Ellen Petinos after bullying accusations emerged from her office. It was revealed on Thursday that Mr Chandler's resignation letter was sent to Premier Dominique Perrottet just four hours before the Premier sacked Ms Petinos. 
Customer Service Minister Victor Dominello announced on Friday Mr Chandler would stay in his role as New South Wales Building Commissioner until August next year. The federal government has reported earmarked it earmarked $75 million for mitigation measures for New South Wales communities hit by this year's devastating floods. The money for levy improvements, warning equipment and other resilience measures will be announced today by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. The funding will go to the 62 local government areas hit by flooding in February and March this year. Mr. Albanese is attending a bush summit of community leaders, farmers, industry and MPs including New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet in Griffith, New South Wales. The Greens have accused the government of undoing their own climate legislation after announcing more than 46,000 kilometres of ocean would be open to oil and gas exploration. Resources Minister Madeleine King announced the government would release 10 sites off the coast of Victoria and the Northern Territory, as well as Western Victoria, for possible future projects to secure energy supply. The Greens have been advocating for a moratorium on all future fossil fuel projects. Leader Adam Bant told ABC Radio his party will still support the government's climate bill in the Senate, but the move is concerning. You don't end the climate wars by opening new coal, oil and gas projects. And we are talking about huge um, climate-blowing projects, both in offshore waters that are being spoken about um, this week, but also the other 114 coal and gas projects that are on the books at the moment. California plans to require all new cars, trucks and SUVs to run on electricity or hydrogen by 2035. The decision by the California Air Resources Board came two years after Governor Gavin Newsom first directed regulators to consider such a policy. If the goal is reached, California would cut emissions from cars in half by 2040. Governor Newsom says California will be the first in the world to do this. We will be the first jurisdiction in the world to require all new cars to be sold to be alternative fuel cars. And here's why it's significant. Besides being a game changer in terms of our climate and our energy leadership, it's a game changer in another respect that the car manufacturers themselves are celebrating and embracing it, including Toyota today, not just Ford and GM. Mr. Newsom has pledged to spend billions to boost zero-emission vehicle sales, including adding charges in low-income neighborhoods. This policy still needs federal approval, but that's considered very likely under Democratic President Joe Biden's administration. White House briefing, Press Secretary Karine, Karine Jean-Pierre says President Joe Biden has reaffirmed the U.S. commitment to Ukraine during a call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky a day after the six-month mark of the war with Russia. So the president reiterated the United States' support for Ukraine as they defend themselves from Russian aggression, including yesterday's announcement of nearly $3 billion uh, in weapons and equipment. He congratulated Ukraine as it marked a particularly significant Independence Day this week and shared his admiration for the people of Ukraine and its armed uh, forces as as they continue to inspire the world with their dedication of 
The two leaders also reiterated their call for Russia to return full control of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant to Ukraine and for the International Atomic Energy Agency to be given access to the plant. Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered a major build-up of his country's military forces in, a, in an apparent effort to replenish troops that have suffered heavy losses in six months of bloody warfare and prepare for a long, grinding fight ahead in Ukraine. COVID-19 vaccines that have been modified to better match today's Omicron threat are expected to be rolled out in a few weeks. Pfizer and Moderna both asked U.S. regulators to authorize modified versions of their booster vaccine. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is evaluating what scientists call a bivalent vaccine with a decision expected soon. The FDA's vaccine chief, Dr. Peter Marks, says the tweaked boosters could help right away. By changing uh, the composition of what is in these boosters, uh, we are able to elicit and essentially refresh the immune response so that it will hopefully do a better job uh, of uh, eliminating uh, the uh, virus the variant BA.5 is currently causing nearly all COVID-19 infections in the U.S. and much of the world. But current COVID-19 vaccines match the coronavirus variant that circulated in early 2020. And to sport veteran Cronulla prop Aidan Tolman has announced his decision to retire from rugby league. The 33-year-old, who is the eldest and most experienced player in the NRL with 314 games under his belt, says he only came to the decision earlier this week. His retirement follows the decision of teammate and fellow front rower Andrew Fifita on Tuesday to leave the club at the end of the season. Tolman made his debut in 2008 for Melbourne and enjoyed a 10-year stint at Canterbury before linking with the Sharks in 2019. Now having a look at the weather around the country, Brome a sunny day at the top of 31, Perth sunny 21, Adelaide partly cloudy 16, Melbourne cloudy 15, Hobart partly cloudy 15, Canberra similar conditions 16, Wollongong a shower of 217, Sydney Showers 18 degrees, Newcastle similar conditions and 19, Brisbane mostly sunny 22, Townsville mostly cloudy 24, Keynes partly cloudy 27, Alice Springs mostly sunny 20, Darwin sunny 33 degrees and the Torres Strait Islands are mostly cloudy day and a top of 29 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. Now coming up next in your program this Friday afternoon, well, we have a conversation with uh, Sharin McLeod, Professor of Speech and Language Acquisition at Charles Sturt University, and we'll be exploring a recent study celebrating young Indigenous Australian children's speech and language competence. Also in the program, we discuss recent developments in science and technology with Wiradjuri Woman and science and technology editor Ray, Jones, Ray Johnston. Among uh, topics we'll be discussing, well, there's a recent study showing that food served in a youth detention centre in South Australia gives insights into the role diet and menu choices play in improving or reducing their incarceration experience. We also see how introduced uh, Spaces are costing Australia 
billions of dollars each year. NITV Radio will also feature an interview of uh, Kenneth McLean, a traditional owner, and we'll be talking about an exhibition in Brisbane exploring ancient trade routes and relationships in the Coral Sea dating thousands of years. NITV Radio, on radio, online and mobile. Well, today we're just in the middle, almost at the end of uh, the Speech Pathology Week Awareness Week, which will run from the 21st to the 27th of uh, August. In this contest, we spoke to Sharon McLeod, Professor of Speech and Language Acquisition at Charles Sturt University, where we looked at a study celebrating young Indigenous Australian children's speech and language competence. Professor McLeod worked with Indigenous children who speak between one and eight languages. They explored the role of elders in speech and language acquisition. The first part of the conversation was actually aired earlier this week, but today we continue the conversation starting by exploring the importance across all cultures to preserve original languages. And so this message is really across all the clever multilingual people across Australia, Indigenous people and people from many other cultures, that we are so much better if we actually think about our world in many different languages and that we really respect and value the language and culture of each individual The final thing that I actually want to say is that grandparents are really, really, really important in this. And many young children have grandparents who care for them, um, you know, while their parents are at work or whatever. Grandparents passing on their home languages is so important. And something that tends to happen is just before school, many parents and families go, oh, they're about to go to school. They better hurry up and learn English. Now, it's okay to learn English, but kids are going to get English just by being in Australia. Don't let these children lose their home language. Maintain the home language. You can do both. Kids are really clever. We've got the research to show Indigenous kids can speak up to eight languages. Speaking two is fine. Kids are really smart. And even when they have speech and language difficulties, our research shows that kids are really smart and are able to speak more than one language, two or three languages, even with speech and language difficulties and speech pathologists really, really encourage you to keep those languages. Don't drop it. Don't just speak English. Though families share similar concerns, it would appear when it comes to language learning and speaking, uh, uh, using language at home, uh, there would be some um, major differences there, look, every family is different. And even every child in every family is different and has a different opinion on this. So one of the things that we've worked on doing with the Vietnamese community is encouraging families to actually talk about it, to have a family language policy. Is it important to them to maintain their home language? If so, when? Um, some families go to the extreme of having one parent per language, but I don't think, and looking at the research, um, not that we've done this research, but looking at other people's research, I don't think you need to go to that extreme. But it's a really good idea to have a rule, you know, that during dinner we speak Spanish or during dinner we speak Wiradjuri. During bath time we play with the toys in the bath in Wiradjuri language, and then that's it. Or 
some families I know speak their home language at home and then they walk out the door and they speak English unless they're with other people from their community. And so families really need to actually just have a chat. And that chat, I think, should happen every six months or even every three months because it will change, particularly as children grow older. Um, attending cultural events is great if you have cultural events to attend. There's a lot of amazing things online. And I think people just don't realise that even very common books in Australia, like the Very Hungry Caterpillar or Mem Fox's Where is the Green Sheep are available in many, many languages. Um, then I have a bookshelf that it, I really collect Indigenous um, Australian books written in, in, in Indigenous languages and there are some absolutely beautiful books that Indigenous communities are developing. And I have them available in my office um, for visitors to see the range of things and to get inspiration for their communities as well. I think that um, activities, games, books, things that make learning language fun are an important part. And you don't have to have commercially available books. We have technology these days. You literally can take a photograph and write in your language underneath it um, a story and you've got your own iPad book that a child can um, enjoy, you know. So there's so much scope if we just use our imagination to think about how we can maintain language. And uh, one more finding uh, in your study that uh, has been highlighted is that um, children who spoke an Indigenous language were more likely to live in moderate to extreme isolation. Yeah, so um, this was, again, from the Footprints in Time study, um, the longitudinal study of Indigenous children. And um, we tried to work out, well, you know, how for this study. So they had 11 different sites across Australia where they specifically chose um, to look at those groups. So they had children in really metropolitan areas like Sydney. They had children in um, large regional places like Dubbo near me. And they also had children in the Torres Strait and other places across Australia. So 11 different sites. And it certainly was the case that children were able to maintain their home language, um, their Indigenous language, much more if they were more isolated from an English language environment um, because their communities were speaking those home Indigenous languages. It's much more difficult when you walk out the door and every sign you see, every person you hear is speaking in the English. And one of the really fascinating and different things about Australia compared to many other countries is that we don't have a dominant second language. So in a country like Canada, they speak English and then a lot of people speak French and then there's other languages. In a country like um, the US, a lot of people speak Spanish as a second language. In Australia, every time the census comes out, the top five languages are different. This year we had Mandarin, Arabic, um, Punjabi was in it for the first time, Vietnamese and Cantonese, I think, um, whereas Italian and Greek have now 
and no longer in the top five languages. And so these languages keep changing. So the mix of the Australian community and what people are speaking is changing and also the time since migration. So if you're in the first or second generation of migration for foreign language speakers, you're more likely to maintain the language than if you're in the third generation. And I think that this research from the Indigenous communities might be showing that people who are closer to their um, cultural families um, are more able to maintain their languages than people who are more immersed in, um, you know, larger communities. I'm not sure about that because I didn't actually collect that research. Your findings actually mirror another study that I covered recently about uh, revitalising um endangered languages i study uh, a workshop that was carried recently at a bachelor institute with the native americans uh, helping indigenous australians revive indigenous languages and it was uh, actually said in that conference that uh, it is extremely important to have elders interact with younger generations in order to develop language skills and revitalize languages I think, um, you know, we have been promoting that across all languages and I do have some colleagues that work with the Navajo community in um, in the bottom of America. I'm actually working on an Oxford University Press handbook in 72 different languages and dialects across the world at the moment. So I'm very honoured to just learn from so, so many people and the importance of intergenerational um, sharing of language and keeping languages alive is is really important. And grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins, the whole community has a role in supporting children's communication regardless, regardless of if, even if they speak one language, but to maintain languages, it's just so important. So everybody in the community has a really important role to play um, in maintaining and supporting children's language development and and their ability to thrive in this world. Professor McLeod, it's been really a great pleasure talking to you in the context of this uh, Speech Pathology Awareness Week. But before I let you go, anything you'd like to add, maybe a closing word? Oh, look, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to all of your um, communities um, today. And so I close with uh, the Speech Pathology Week logo uh, and theme, good communication, better communities. So keep communicating amongst yourselves and particularly amongst those precious children in your communities. Thanks very much. NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook. And that was um, Pretty Boy by uh, Ziggy Ramo coming to you on NITV Radio this uh, Friday, 26th of August with me, Bertranda Tungandami, your host. Now, coming up uh, next, uh, our conversation about uh, the latest developments in science and technologies, the stories we're going to explore, some might sound strange, some might feel just curious, some amazing and exciting, but well, that's what scientists are up to every day. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. 
Podcast. It's time for the latest developments in science and technology with Wiradjuri Woman and science and technology editor Ray Johnston. Welcome to Night TV Radio, Ray. Thanks so much for having me. We start with this story showing that health practitioners need help to offer support for domestic violence victims. Yes, so this is a study that's come out uh, from the Medical Journal of Australia, actually. And they're saying that health systems, they play a key role in addressing gender-based violence, particularly domestic and sexual violence, but they haven't been given adequate resources to be able to respond in a way that benefits victims and survivors and children. And gender-based violence, it includes physical, psychological, sexual or economic behaviour that causes harm for reasons associated with someone's gender. And Australian numbers show that one in six women and one in 17 men have experienced domestic violence, with sexual violence occurring against one in six women and one in 25 men. And notably, Indigenous women's experiences are 35 to 80 times the national average. And victims and survivors, they're more likely to access health services like a general practice or an Aboriginal community-controlled health service than any other kind of professional help. So health practitioners, they're in a really good place to be able to identify domestic and sexual violence and provide a first-line response and then be able to refer people on to support services. So it is essential for practitioners to have skills to ask and respond to domestic and sexual violence, given that victims and survivors who receive positive reactions are more likely to accept help. But there are personal barriers for health practitioners bringing up gender-based violence with their patients, including feeling like they can't interfere because domestic and sexual violence can be seen as a private issue and that they don't have control over outcomes for victims and survivors, so they won't take responsibility because it's someone else's role. So there are barriers also for patients to be able to reach out to GPs, uh, including fears about consequences of disclosing, like children being removed, or judgmental responses, confidentiality being broken, shame, or even an awareness that what they're experiencing is abuse. So the researchers for this report are saying that system support through committed leadership and specific policies and protocols, having clinical champions, you know, specific infrastructure set up and quality improvement activities is essential to improve this situation. Uh, one that will be really very close to you, propelling women into STEM with the applications open for elevated scholarships. That's right. The Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering has opened applications for their Boosting Women in STEM program. They call it Elevate, and the program is funded by the Australian government. And what it does is it awards up to 500 undergraduate and postgraduate scholarships to women in science, technology, engineering, and maths over the next six years. And the program is all about encouraging women to pursue education and careers in STEM, and it offers opportunities to extend qualifications and networks and professional skills. And they're encouraging a diverse and broad range of girls and women to apply and to pursue education and careers in STEM because diversity, it builds strength and it's crucial to the future of STEM innovation in Australia. 
And more women in discovery and innovation will build the resilience and, and capability and breadth of Australian research. So the Elevate program will also provide targeted professional development and mentoring and cross-sector networking that will make sure that anyone involved in the program will graduate with career-building knowledge and skills and connections and relationships. It's open to all students who identify as women, and they are particularly encouraging Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander women to apply. So if this sounds like you, anyone listening, uh, just look up the Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering Elevate program and give it a go. Yeah, we'll put the message out there because uh, it's something that uh, we need to close the gap in that area. Absolutely, definitely. Yeah. And uh, another discovery is about uh, non-native amphibians and reptiles. Uh, it's revealed that they are costing us billions of dollars. Absolutely. European researchers, they say that invading species of amphibians and reptiles, that's where the species spread beyond their native regions, that's what they consider invading, uh, this includes cane toads, by the way. They're likely to have cost the global economy at least $24 billion between 1986 and 2020. And they say that these invasions can lead to damage, including the displacement or extinction of native plants and animals, as well as spreading disease and destroying crops. And the research team say geographically, Oceania and the Pacific Islands recorded 63% of the total costs. And these findings, they highlight the need for more effective policies to limit the spread of current and future amphibian and reptile invasions. And data for this was taken from all over the place, from peer-reviewed articles, from documents on, on governmental, academic and, and non-governmental organisation webpages, and also documents from biological invasion experts. And they're saying that the economic costs of amphibian and reptile invasions could be reduced by investing in measures to limit global transport of invasive species, to stop them from travelling overseas, and to also work out ways to enable early detection of invasions, to, to understand when they have been you know, put in an environment that they shouldn't be. And this should reduce the need for long-term management of species invasions um, and the scale of the damage incurred as well. If they can get in there early, then we're not looking at undoing you know, so much damage like we are with cane toads, for example. As those warnings at uh, the borders, uh, yeah, beware over what you're bringing in the country. It could actually cost us a lot of money. And now, a study of food served in a youth detention centre in South Australia gives insight into the role diet and menu choices play in improving or reducing their incarceration experience. Yeah, so this is a Flinders University study, and they looked at detainees aged between 10 and 19 years of age, and they found a general disappointment in the quality of the food. And this, this is actually the first time that we've considered the extent of the lived food-related experiences of incarcerated children match the principles in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and the Charter of Rights for Children and Young People Detained in Training Centres. And what they did was they did interviews at the Kalana Tapa Youth Justice Centre that revealed many of the young people found their food service a, a punitive aspect of their incarceration, like, like part of the punishment. 
And the food that was available included mainly high-carb and sweet snacks, like chocolate biscuits, chips. And the main meals, they say, were not palatable and really lacking in fresh fruit and vegetables. So this study says that there needs to be a review of the food offerings in detention by a qualified dietitian and to get the kids involved in it as well, get them involved in improving the quality and quantity and variety of the meals and snacks in the tuck shop. And then this can then branch into learning how to plan and budget and shop and cook and share a healthy meal, providing independent living skills and also maintaining connections to culture where appropriate as well. So along with the health benefits, food and food-related activities, they can be used to enhance cultural awareness and belonging and peer and social development, literacy, numeracy, problem-solving, sensory development and even coordination as well. So there's a lot of benefits here, um, you know, the least of which is you know, this additional effort would, at a very basic but very important level, ensure the rights of particularly vulnerable children and young people are met and their development and well-being are supported while they go through this really difficult time. Well, Ray, thank you very much for taking the time to bring to us developments in science and technology this week. Thank you so much for having me. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook. Welcome back. Now, Connections Across the Coral Sea is a new exhibition. It's an exhibition exploring a story of a movement bringing together Indigenous communities and the latest research on international trade routes and relationships across the Coral Sea dating back thousands of years. The exhibition is now on at the Queensland Museum and leading up to the launch of this exhibition, well, NITV Radio's Kerry Lee Harding caught up with uh, Kenneth McLean, one of the traditional owners working on the project. My name's Kenneth McLean. I'm the chairperson of Wollomba Aboriginal Corporation. Um, I think I'm a spokesperson also. I think I'm a traditional owner. Now, I understand this exhibition is about ongoing research with James Cook University, and there's more than one uh, cultural site involved in this research. Um, yeah, it's more than one cultural site involved in the research. The research spreads across the Coral Sea, and so um, there's some. Also, other traditional groups are involved with the connection across the Coral Sea that the research took place, yeah. And what has been some of the findings so far, surprising findings perhaps, that has come about from the research? Um, well, some of the findings have been the shell, shell meetings that have been gathered about to be about 6,300 years old, and some of the main artefacts are the, shell, the meetings, the pottery that's been found that's dated back, dated back to be about 2,300 years old. So looking at that time frame, um, there were um, indigenous groups were making pottery around that time, 2,300 years ago, within the east coast of Cape York. That's incredible, isn't it? Um, yeah, no, that's um, something good for the research and also something good for the land for the um, traditional owners of their country, you know. And I understand this exhibition educates people about the Coral Sea and the trade routes? Um, yep, um, yeah, the, um, the exhibition is about teaching about the cultural significance of across the Coral Sea and also the cultural significance of the connection to the country for the indigenous groups across the Coral Sea. And, yeah. and I understand this has also created employment opportunities? 
Um, yep, this has also created employment opportunities for for the younger ones or the youth of our communities and across the Coral Sea region too, be in universities for become scientists, professors, archaeologists. It's something good for our nation, you know. And tell us about the history of Lizard Island. Um, well, the history of Lizard Island, known to my Dingal people, um, it's a place for ceremony. It's a place where the story took place. Our songline ran through and from from the beginning of time, our elders were connecting to that place through the songlines and the ceremonies that took place on Lizard Island. And what is some of the research found about Lizard Island, Kenneth? Um, well, some of the research found that um, due to our people going out there for ceremonies and having the special connection, Lizard Island is known as Dingal. Dingal is part of the um, Gokuyumidra Nation, and the research team seen that um, we have been doing ceremonies and having that connection to the Dingal country for a very long time, and um, it's pointed out to be traveling across the sea. So, um, yeah, um, they did uh, not, 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 not much knew that um, our people were Sifarian people that were traveling hundreds of kilometers in sea, you know. And tell us about the exhibition opening. What was that like? Um, the ex- exhibition opening was um, it was it was a wonderful experience for the Dingal people traveling to Brisbane and also um, meeting the traditional owners of the of the Brisbane area and um, speaking with the professors on the on how how the collaboration went and how the research is still ongoing and um, yeah, it was a good opening for the Dingal people and for the guests as well for the um, opening of the Coral Sea. And how does it personally make you feel that this really important research about trade routes has been done for your people? How important is it? Well, from from our elders, my elders was always telling me as a young fella, our people were travelling out to sea. You know, it had that connection to go to our country on sea. And um, through through what we see today, it's, it's like the oldest international trade that's ever been recorded. Not only my people were traveling out to sea, they were also um, indigenous groups all across the Coral Sea um, doing the same thing, you know, and that was um, a few thousand years ago, and yeah. And that was a traditional owner, Kenneth McLean, in conversation with the NITV radio's Kerry Lee Harding, talking about connections across the Coral Sea an exhibition currently on at the Queensland Museum. The exhibition explores, as you've heard, international trade routes and relationships across the Coral Sea dating back thousands of years. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. And that was A uh, Thousand Miles by uh, the kid uh, Larry coming to you on NITV Radio this Friday afternoon. And uh, that brings us to the end of uh, today's program. NITV Radio will be back on Monday with uh, more stories from uh, right across Australia. I'm Bertrand Tungandami, thanking you for your company this uh, Friday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from.